I'd like to welcome you all very warmly to this debate. Um, before I hand over to Lucy Winkett, who's chairing, um, I'd just like to um, publicize the next uh, Just Share debate, which is on the 4th of July. Um, so it's in about a month's time, and it's on uh, the subject of whether fair trade is really fair. Um, there, there'll be more details on the website, which is justshare.org.uk, and um, there's also some leaflets at the back. Um, so I will, I'll be giving those out at the end. Um, but uh, I really hope that you'll enjoy this, and I'll hand over to Lucy. Thank you very much. As we said, welcome to this Just Share debate on the impact of offshoring jobs. We have two distinguished speakers with us this afternoon. Each of them will speak for uh, an allotted time, and then we'll have time for questions or comments from the floor. So please, as the speakers are uh, giving you their version of the impact of offshoring jobs, whether uh, you would like to make a com comment or a question, please do keep that in mind. Perhaps write a note, and we'll have some time for that afterwards. Our first speaker is Mark Kobayashi Hillary. Mark is a renowned business writer, thinker, and commentator. He's a visiting lecturer at London South Bank University. He's a founding member of the British Computer Society's Working Party on Offshoring, and he is director of the National Outsourcing Association. Mark. So thanks very much. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my background's actually in the financial services industry, and I used to work just across the street from here um, many years ago. Um, from working in the city, I actually gained a lot of practical experience of what the newspapers are now calling offshoring. I spent a lot of time working in India and Singapore within the technology industry. Um, I ended up writing about this, and uh, as you've probably seen, I, I wrote one book about this subject, and I've actually got two books on the subject coming out by the end of this year. So I think just briefly, it's, it's worth just differentiating between outsourcing and offshoring, because quite often we're using these terms interchangeably. Outsourcing is um, contracting out a service. So this could be a call center, it could be a technology service, it could be any form of service when one company is buying this from another company. Offshoring is slightly different in that we generally use this term when we're replacing some existing facility with another. I, I think Lloyd's TSB in the city is a good example because they're actually working with their call centers in another country, in India, but those people are employed by Lloyd's TSB. So basically, we're really talking about globalization. Companies are finding that they can purchase goods and services from locations all over the world, and they're making a choice based on where they can get the highest possible quality for the lowest possible price. And really, that's the same as any of us, as a normal consumer. Uh, when you go out and you try to buy a new car, you normally will try to buy the best possible car you can get at the, either the lowest price or within a certain budget. So companies don't really do anything different. So I'd like to see if um, anyone can guess who wrote this quote. The exploitation of the world market has given a cosmopolitan character to production and consumption in every country. 
All old established national industries have been destroyed or are daily being destroyed. They're dislodged by new industries whose introduction becomes a life and death question for all civilized nations. In place of the old local and national seclusion and self-sufficiency, we now have intercourse in every direction, a universal inter interdependence of nations. Now, to me, that actually sounds like a very recent quote, uh, people talking about the problems of globalization. But it's actually a quote from the Communist Manifesto. This is Marx and Engels actually writing about this 150 years ago. So it's a reminder that our fear and uncertainty and doubt about jobs and offshoring moving to different locations is actually not new. The doom and gloom they predicted 150 years ago, I don't think it's really happened. And certainly, I spent most of last week in Moscow, and I can see how they've really embraced the, the global environment there over the last decade. So globalization itself has a somewhat checkered history and status. It implies a changing world, and people generally don't like change. If you look at the detractors, people such as um, the Nobel laureate, Joseph Stiglitz, they, they argue that globalization as we see it now has a negative effect on society. Though Mr. Stiglitz actually does argue that globalization in theory could work, he generally argues that the way that we control it at the moment doesn't work. And I think you can go from the view of Stiglitz right down to the kind of brick-throwing thugs who smash up Starbucks in, uh, whenever there's a meeting of the World Trade Organization. I think what's really important to accept now, though, is that the world is changing, and that means our companies are changing. It means our ideas of a career are now changing. The types of skills we need to see us through our entire life, they're all changing, and this creates a lot of new opportunities, as well as presenting certain threats. It, there's a lot of uncertainty about how we face up to these new challenges. So as I mentioned, the globalization of industry itself is one of the major drivers changing society today. And corporate strategy experts are really busy advising companies on how best to spread their resource across the world. But this entire phenomenon is underpinned by the technology that we're now seeing that's making this possible. As you know, the internet itself has only really been available to the public for about the last 12 years. But it's already changed our lives. The telecommunications that we can see today, they're light years away from where we were just a decade ago. And we're in an environment now where companies and also individuals operate with almost zero cost for sending information around the world and also for making telephone calls and contacting people. This is a world where telecoms itself is at a cost that's almost approaching nothing. And so for the man in the street, this is actually a frightening prospect. Just imagine if you went to school and you got good grades, then you might have gone to university and studied for several years to get a degree, and then you might have started your job and actually taken some professional qualifications to become something like an accountant. And now, because we have this communication technology linking the world, we can actually look at um, a country such as India, where there's an abundance of trained accountants who can actually perform the same job that you're performing in the UK. Um, of course, another point that's linked to that is the Commonwealth. Because although we're not actually 
usually talking about the British Empire in a positive light. A legacy of that empire is that many, many countries around the world use English as a working language, but they also have a framework of accounting and legal standards that makes it very easy for companies to work together. So perhaps that actually means the end for the legal profession as well. Um, and some companies are already offshoring legal research work. And in fact, there's already a new acronym. If you look in the business press, people are talking about LPO for legal process outsourcing. But though this change in our working lives in the rich Western countries might be quite unnerving, it's not quite the doomsday scenario that you might imagine, especially from, from reading the press reports. I mean, if you just take a moment to think about a few of the benefits for all this extra trade. India itself is the eighth largest foreign direct investor into the United Kingdom. They're sending money here by buying our products and services. Companies sending work over to countries such as India are helping to create a new middle class. This is in a region that suffered decades of poverty. You can actually look historically at the effect that trade of this nature has had on countries such as South Korea and Taiwan. I think it becomes obvious that trading with developing nations then actually becomes a moral imperative. Really, I've personally been working with uh, several African countries, Ghana, Botswana, South Africa, Kenya. All these countries actually see an opportunity where there's a level playing field for them to offer services internationally and actually escape the poverty trap. So imagine the change that could actually then happen once non-English speaking countries adopt this idea of offshoring. Mainly we're seeing the US and UK embracing this, but when we see all of Europe embrace this, then I think we'll see actually a much larger change and that change will accelerate. So this is really not a one-way street. We're not looking at just jobs vanishing from the UK to a country such as India. This is an element of a network society. Jobs can move around the world, but also people can move around the world more easily. If you look at the work of Thomas Friedman of the New York Times, he calls this the creation of a flat world. And the flat world allows you know, new innovative ways of delivering services where you blend delivery from multiple countries and use the technology to allow this to be delivered locally. But the possibility of delivering these services from anywhere in this ever flatter world has led many people to fear the end of a British technology industry as the, shop, the jobs in the UK in this industry are shipped off to places such as Bangalore. I mean, really, you might expect technology to be the first jobs to go because all of this change is driven by technology. But the reality is quite different. If you look at statistics published by the Office of National Statistics in the UK, you can see that the UK is actually a net exporter of IT-enabled work. And employment growth in the past four years within this sector has actually been 8.8% compared to general employment growth in the UK of about 3.2%. So we're seeing actually jobs being created within the technology industry in this country, um, but they're different jobs to what we saw a decade ago. They're much more client-facing. They require much more business domain knowledge and less straight technical knowledge. So the idea of the last British technology or software developer 
turning out the lights as they enter a new career, shepherding tourists around St. Paul's Cathedral is really a fallacy. But I think we do need to acknowledge that the globalization of services in general is changing how we see the world. We need to examine how schools are teaching our children, how universities are training people, and how professional organizations, such as the unions, for example, actually need to help people train throughout a lifelong career. Britain actually has to build on our existing skills and services to then square up throughout the 21st century to the countries that will really be the economic giants of this century, such as Brazil, Russia, India, and China. One other advantage, very briefly, is that this global network of trade also promotes free speech. It encourages countries to engage in liberal democratic policies. What we've seen very recently in the news is many American companies investing into China have been extensively criticized for measures they've taken, such as censorship. And I don't think that China can persist in the kind of policies they have in this environment of public criticism over a number of years. So just finally, it's worth remembering that not all jobs are going offshore and not all jobs can go offshore. The McKinsey Global Institute estimates that only 11% of services could ever be delivered remotely. The OECD has actually published research that's a, a bit more favorable and saying something like 19% could be remotely delivered. But the reality is that even with these kind of possibilities, work that could possibly be delivered from another country, it, it will never happen, it, basically because the remote delivery implies there's a risk, there's a danger of mistakes, and so the reality will be much smaller. In fact, McKinsey says something like 2.5% of what may well be possible is what will really happen. So what's possible in theory won't ever become a reality. And basically, although this is an important social trend, you have to remember that they'll never be able to outsource a haircut. Thank you very much. very much indeed. Kieran is a campaign officer for Amicus in the financial services sector and he has expertise in the area of offshoring overseas and will respond to Mark Kobayashi Hillary. Thank you. Thank you. Um, well I work for Amicus which is the uh, largest private sector union in the UK. We have about 1.2 million members and uh, many of our members work in the financial services and in the IT sector. So those are two sectors which have been affected quite significantly as a result of the offshoring of work. Now, from the outset, I want to say that we're not opposed fully to the offshoring of work to uh, countries like India, South Africa, and other parts of Southeast Asia. Uh, it would be unrealistic to, to oppose change technology, particularly communications technology, is obviously making the world a much smaller place. So it's only natural that goods and services are going to move around the globe. But the big question is, is how is this change going to be managed? How do we ensure that people working in the UK, that their jobs 
are secure, that the world is changing, but there are some things that don't change. People still want job security. They still want to have a career. They want to have a future. They want to have pensions. They want to have holidays. And in India, we have to think about how is this change affecting staff in India? What about their terms and conditions? What about their representation? So those are the issues that we have to think about. It's not just about work going overseas, it's about how you actually manage this change to make sure that people on both sides benefit. And that's our concern. We don't always think that it is benefiting the UK, and in many cases it's not always benefiting uh, people who are working in, in India. Um, in the UK recently there was a company uh, called Prudential who closed down an office in Belfast. All 500 people lost their jobs, and then the work moved overseas to India. Those people now are unemployed. So we need to think about, well, how do we continue to ensure that those people have secure jobs for the future? We've always argued that uh, government and employers need to work together to ensure that employees do not lose out on good jobs in the new economy, that the government supports skills and the training agenda, which is needed to create the sort of knowledge economy that the government talks about so much. And to date, we haven't seen much evidence of that. We see a few thousand jobs moving from a company like HSBC or Norwich Union, but what is actually replacing those jobs? They often argue that those jobs are going to be replaced by higher skilled, uh, more advanced jobs, that UK workers will move up the value chain. But in many cases, when we ask employers to actually demonstrate how this is taking place, they're unable to provide us of any evidence. What we're actually seeing is an increase in temporary insecure part-time work. So the employment figures look good, but in actual fact, when you actually look at the quality of that employment, we need to think about that very carefully. So we're not opposing offshoring, but we're saying, well, we need to make sure that this is benefiting the UK, that it's benefiting people working in the UK. And while employment figures are good, they may not always be good, and then you'll actually be able to see some of the problems which might begin to occur as a result. So from the first instance, as a union, we always try to ensure that there'll be no compulsory redundancies as a result of offshoring, that there are training plans in place for staff who are going to be redeployed. And we've been very successful at ensuring that in companies like Barclays and Lloyd's TSB um, and some of the big banks where we have some quite good progressive agreements which see their staff and their training developments being protected. Um, but in India, we will look at what's happening um, in India as well. There is absolutely no union representation for staff working in India at the moment. Um, at the moment, you have staff working round the clock with very little breaks. Uh, you often see these uh, companies saying, look at these big swimming pools. We've got swimming pools, we've got gyms. Uh, and then you actually ask staff who work in the call centers and you say, oh, you've got a great swimming pool, you've got a great gym. They said, oh, we've never used them before because we're too busy on the phones. So there's a picture being presented that offshoring is working and benefiting everybody. And while we don't oppose offshoring, in many cases, it's not benefiting everybody. Um, and when you look at the business case for offshoring, in some of the offshoring hotspots like Bangalore, we have labor costs rising by 15% a year. So companies are often arguing that, well, it's much cheaper to move work abroad. But the actual labor cost themselves, because competition for work, 
is, is, is so intense that labor costs are increasing by 15% a year. Turnover in India is 70% in some places. So an employer will have to replace their entire staff almost over the course of a year, and then there are the associated costs. So there are lots of hidden costs. Um, there are lots of problems with not enough managers. So there are lots of issues associated with offshoring, which is actually bringing to the fore some serious problems. And what we need to do is manage change rather than saying, well, people in India are benefiting from these jobs. Uh, people in the UK are going to get better jobs. So this is just the way of the world. We're saying, well, maybe unions, employers, and the government need to work together to ensure that the UK workers will have secure employment, that they have some good, secure future careers, and people in India have representation, that they have good terms and conditions, uh, and you'll often find that they don't. Uh, I'm happy to take questions from that. Thank you very much indeed. So we have a few moments for some questions. You've heard both of our speakers acknowledge that in a context of increasing globalization, one of our speakers used the phrase, it's becoming a more flat world. You've heard both of them say that they're not opposed to offshoring jobs in principle, but one says it works and the other is saying that the change needs to be managed much more carefully than it is. And underlying that is also a question that if UK workers are still to keep those, their jobs, what kinds of jobs are they? One of our speakers is arguing that they are higher value jobs. The other is saying that the evidence is not there for that. So you've heard both of our speakers uh, speak in quite subtle terms about a very complex issue. And I'd now like to invite anyone who has a comment or a question to do so. Just raise your hand if you've got anything you'd like to comment. Thank you, yes. We've got some microphone for you, bring you in case you'd like to do that. <clears throat> Okay, um, George Bell here from London South Bank University. Um, I'm in charge of the MBA program, so you'll know what sort of perspective I'm coming from. Um, I think what we've got to do is engage with the realities of globalization. Globalization is, is just international capitalism, so we've got to recognize that. But we've got to also recognize that the unfettered nature of international capitalism doesn't have the old checks and balances that we had maybe 10 or 20 years ago with alternative systems. So we've got to say, okay, so if this is the reality, then the focus has to be maybe on stakeholders' interests. So if we could regroup the arguments on offshoring into the idea that there are stakeholders who receive, there are stakeholders who lose, there are stakeholders in countries, there are stakeholders who've got economic interests, there are stakeholders who've got social interests, and there are stakeholders who've got philosophical and ethical interests in a system of international capitalism. So we've got to see how um, as educators, high as representatives of labor, high as representatives of capital, we can bring some sort of international morality into what has actually gone on. So I think that's where the debate hasn't focused enough. Um, and that's where the debate, if you go back 200 years ago with the Industrial Revolution, we've already seen something similar historically happening, and we've also seen the results of that and the Victorian responses. So some way we need to bring minds together that care about the world, either economically, socially, or development, in order to have that broader debate and let us all then engage in the 
competition for our economic interests, for our social interests, for our ethical interests, and that will make the, the at least bring some balance or some sort of check in the system. As I see it, um, we've also got to look behind the whole notion of globalization because my understanding is that it's not all about low-cost labor. I think there's some areas of the world where actually they're outsourcing and offshoring where it actually costs more than it would to do here because it's actually done better. So it's not all about low cost. There are areas where actually there is added value which um, is done outside the UK. So that in itself needs to be looked at. There are also issues of nearshoring because of the newly European countries. They also will um, have to be part of a community spirit that we're belonging to. So it's not always that far away. There's a lot nearer countries that are going to um, be areas where people will be sending their work. So I think the idea of focusing on the notion and understanding stakeholding in this process I think is a, a moderate way of actually trying to deal with the excesses of globalization. There are more radical ways and hopefully um, we will be able to avoid them. But if you look at the world as it is now, um, one wonders whether or not globalization might actually de-radicalize the world or maybe the world in its sort of postmodern state now is going to put a check on globalization that we also need to be prepared for. So it's just a statement of trying to set a sort of philosophical debate uh, and who actually owns the process. Thank you. Could, could I um, address one of your comments to Mark here? Do, could you comment on the fact that uh, this new capitalism or this change that you've described so eloquently doesn't have the checks and balances that perhaps a, 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 a former type of capitalism would have had? And how do you implement those checks and balances? Because change is all very well but change is just the process. How do you make sure it's right kind of change? Sure. Um, and I think historically capitalism was only a transitory process as well anyway. Um, I think a, a couple of points on, on, on that point. I mean, there's, there's two questions. I mean, there's, there's like the morality within Western countries that have already developed. How do we deal with this? But there's also this question that was raised about how do you look after the people in developing regions that are then um, working within these companies. Um, just, just to give an example, um, from India, it's true that at the moment it's not really a unionized environment. That, I mean, that, that's a fact. But I would, say, I would argue that also within many of the industries in the UK, such as the technology industry, that, that's also not really a unionized environment as well. Um, and to be honest, the market itself is actually providing for a lot of those people in India anyway. If you look at a company like the Tata Consultancy Services, for example, they're the, they're the largest Indian technology group. Uh, at the moment, they've got about 60,000 people working for them. By the end of the year, they plan to have about 90,000 people. You know, this is phenomenal growth, increasing the company by about half its size every year. They actually want to get people, and they want to hang on to them. So it's not, uh, although there is this issue of attrition, they actually want to treat those people well. Um, and, and very much, the people will walk. I mean, they will just go to another employer if they get mistreated. Um, 
within the UK, I think actually, as George mentioned, I think that this uh, this is actually a problem that that needs to be addressed much more by the educators in the UK, but as well as trade bodies and organisations such as unions. I, I think the, the fundamental change we've got here is that we have to understand this whole question about skills and that, that you can't finish school and then expect to have a sort of 50-year career anymore because we're, we're competing almost more as individuals rather than, than companies. We, we've gone from an era of the multinational company almost to an era in which you know, my skills as an individual can be compared now to someone in India or China or Brazil. So I, so I almost need to feel, you know, how do I train myself to compete with people across the world? Because it's just as easy for these people to work for my company as it is for me. So definitely the, the question is very much around this, this issue of lifelong learning and skills and how do you prepare people to work within this environment? And that, that's definitely where you need to examine the stakeholders and actually work out who, who, who plans that. Is it the government's responsibility? Could I, could I address this to Kieran as well? Um, you've articulated some of those checks and balances in terms of agreements with uh, stakeholders such as educators, labour representatives, capital. You articulated some of those checks and balances in your, mm. uh, in your speech. But how do you police that, which is one of, our, one of the questions from our speaker here. What, is there a global ethic? Do you have a global police force that enforces these kinds of checks and balances on this new capitalism? How do you do that? Well. Um, as far as checks and balances and agreements, um, there are a lot of unions across the world and you have international unions which represent those smaller unions and they will often um, draft agreements which are actually on an international basis. So you have a very large company like Lloyd's TSB they will actually have an agreement in the UK, but they will also have some form of labour standards agreement in a country like India or another country. And these bodies will actually oversee those agreements, but they are often voluntary. But you always have to remember that these com companies will benefit from uh, adhering to these agreements because otherwise people will go. So there are forms of checks and balances in place, but they are mainly voluntary, but one of the benefits of that is it actually makes them more flexible. It enables you to get them off the ground more quickly. And like some, an organization like the, the United Nations moves much slower because it's much more bureaucratic. But if you're signing these sorts of voluntary uh, agreements on a global basis, you can more, move more f uh, effectively and more flexibly. Um, and in India, there is actually um, one union agreement which has been signed for the BPO sector now. Uh, there is now a union for offshore uh, BPO sector workers and it's the first it was signed about last week or something. It's kind of hot, hot off the press. So there is beginning to be a movement towards representation and you know unions across the world who are affected by offshoring are all actually sort of working together and providing support to actually get more uh, companies in countries like India to begin to take notice of labor standards because many of them although at face value they look as if they're providing very good terms and conditions for their staff working in call centers in back office creates a great deal of psychological stress you're working at nights you're working in an air-conditioned uh, environment where you suddenly have to walk out into sort of 30 degree heat you're having to travel up to two hours a day to get to your place of work there are all sorts of issues here 
which do need to be policed, and that is beginning to take place, but it is a slow process and we want to see it happen much quicker. Thank you. Any, any other comments or questions? Yes, two. Perhaps you first, Sarah. One thought that strikes me in terms of policing offshoring, um, there's lots of offshoring that we've had for years and years. I guess my coffee's always come from Brazil or East Africa, but I can now choose to buy fair trade coffee so I can affect the way it's produced and the conditions that the producers live under. Is that possible in, say, the IT industry? Can we have a fair trade equivalent for call centers? Thank you. Kieran first. Um, well, obviously, we, we'd like to see companies uh, be extremely transparent about uh, their business activities. And it would have to rely on many companies to actually have some sort of stamp on the policies, for example, that you sign when you buy your car insurance, that you know this work is uh, administered in India and uh, we ensure that we uh, adhere to sort of key international labor organization labor standards, they have the freedom of association, and I think that's something that consumers need to think about doing. Obviously, unions could think about doing that as well, and it is something that we, we push with employers to actually be more transparent about that work. But yes, it's a natural progression of, of globalization. You've got fair trade stamps for coffee, so why don't you have some form of fair trade stamp for, for, for service sector jobs which are maybe moved overseas? So yeah, I completely agree with that. Thank you, Mark. Could you comment on consumer power? Sure. I mean, I, I definitely agree. And this is something we've seen very much so in manufacturing. I mean, when, when people like Naomi Klein wrote about the manufacturing of, of trainers in um, countries such as China and Indonesia and the way that the workers were treated, those, those companies had to then completely change the way they were producing these products um, because it's just not acceptable. I, mean, I think that the, the, the one, one area that may be worth focusing on here as well, though, is that, that we're talking a lot about India. Uh, it's certainly a country that I have a lot of experience of. Um, but, but remember that India is actually a democracy. Um, it does have free and fair elections. There are, there's more than a million elective representatives in India. Um, it, it, it's got that kind of structure. It, it may not be that hard to work with companies such as Norwich Union, Prudential, you know, to, to set up some sort of basic framework and say, you know, all of our workers, whether they're in Norwich or Bangalore, uh, you know, are working within this sort of framework. I mean, that, that would be fair trade services. And I don't think that they would, they would, probably, they would probably support a move like that. Where, where it may be more difficult is, is China, where people are talking very much about the, the next wave of services moving into China and where you have you know, much less kind of democratic representation. So you know, whether the, the market itself could possibly shift that and change the environment there is, is another question. Thank you. We had another question at the back here. Thank you. Uh, it's a comment, really. Uh, <coughs> seems to me that you've got two speakers who are <coughs> not all that far apart. They're not extremists in a sense, but um, <coughs> One has to recognize that what human beings are about, if you're trying to uh, look at a, a problem like this, there's nothing new about an industry going from the UK elsewhere. I mean, our textile industry, in effect, has already gone elsewhere. It's been offshored in a way. The coal industry has been offshored. Uh, and there are probably dozens of other examples as, as well. Um, 
and it seems to me that when, when that happens, somebody loses their jobs. And though some people bounce back immediately, a lot of people suffer a great deal when they lose their jobs, and particularly if it's a big community. <coughs> um, but on the other hand, there's another group of people elsewhere in the world who are equally important, who are gaining jobs, and they're, they're benefiting from this process. So really, both of you have got to, I think, change your ways. Trade unions have got to become more international. You touched on that a little bit, I mean, but I think we both agree at the moment they're not that good at being international, but they do have a, a real need to uh, operate not just in a single country, but <coughs> um, more internationally. And at the same time, companies have to be, have a much better um, corporate governance so that they can think of their, particularly companies which are uh, employee dependent, you know, where their main resource is people and offshore um, telephone systems are mainly people. It's not, um, well, there's a bit of IT involved, but we're really talking about people here. What you really want is companies which have got really good corporate governance and where they're interested in their employees and the codes of practice and the trade union rights, etc. Whether, uh, whether they're in this country or whether they're abroad. So I think both of you have got we need to change uh, both, both uh, groups involved. Thank you. Would you like to comment on the international aspect of unions? Are you becoming more international? Uh, I mean, unions are becoming increasingly international. They've always been international uh, to one degree or another o o over the years, but as globalization has speeded up, uh, as it's more, um, it's easier to, you know, pick up a, factory which produces cars in the UK and take it to Eastern Europe, more unions are actually working together and you know it was only last week I was in a meeting with um, the representative for the union in India. We have regular conversations and we work together and we share ideas and uh, at the moment for the Peugeot campaign French unions are working with the British unions, German unions are working with the British unions. You have these big international umbrella bodies where unions from all over the world meet every year. They, they, they are internationally facing. We have to be internationally facing. It would be ridiculous for unions to be inward looking and only think about domestic policy because the outside world affects us and affects the people who we represent. So we are internationally facing. And you look at the agreements which have been signed in India recently, a lot of those agreements have actually come about through the work that unions in, in, in England have been uh, doing, unions in Finland have been doing, and unions in America. They've all been supporting these unions in India. So we are internationally facing organizations. Could you comment, Mark, specifically on the role of unions in this? Because you, you've argued very strongly that, um, that this is, you know, we shouldn't be frightened of change, but change for change's sake is not necessarily the right thing. But you're trusting the market to a greater extent than perhaps mm. some of our speakers are, are asking for. So what is the specific role of unions in making this change a good change? Okay, I would suggest that probably it's actually in, in working to, not only for an international framework that, that works within, say, um, ILO guidelines and publishes those and, uh, and actually promotes those to, to the corporate world, but um, perhaps also to get involved maybe more with um, career management. So, you know, this, this may be something that, that Amicus is already very much involved in, but, but I guess the impression is still to the general public that, that it's campaigning for, for UK workers' rights 
um, at, you know, at the expense of uh, uh, other people's rights. And the, the, the idea I feel should be more that um, the environment is changing, the international environment is changing, so how best can the UK fit within that? Um, it, it was mentioned earlier that th this is certainly not just about cost. We, you know, we're not looking just at companies will just sack 500 people just to go somewhere that's cheap. Um, in many cases, they're actually looking for improved quality of service. Um, now, the highest quality IT service, software development service companies are now based in India. So, so you know, this is actually a, a, an expertise that they've built up over a period of years now. Um, and I think that, you know, when, when the argument changes somewhat, when we're talking more about, I'm going to go to this particular region for a certain expertise, rather than worrying about the cost. So I think definitely that, that idea of career management is, is, is really important. Can I, yes, say something very, can I say something very quickly? Sorry, no. I'm just going to take another question. Okay. Just in the front here. We've just got a Thank couple you. of moments left. Um, I think I speak now as a stakeholder, customer, old age pensioner. And I think that the level of service that we get from both public and private industries now is awful. Uh, when you try and phone up about anything, you get somebody quite often in a foreign country who is very polite, very charming. Uh, the best way is in, in the end to get them talking about the weather in Bombay to show that you're not threatening them, but they actually don't know the answer. When it, the, the, all the change comes when you have to phone up somebody and you realize with a relief you're t talking to s somebody in Stockton on Tees who actually knows what it's like to live in this country and that sort of frustration. I've had a running battle with Marks and Spencers over two years about their mistake. I can never get to anybody. If I go to a manager in the store, they can't get to anybody. And now, having more time to listen to Radio 4, I don't think I'm the only person thinking this. I suggest you're getting an awful lot of management satisfaction, but not much stakeholder customer satisfaction. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. It's a heartfelt comment. Mark, could you comment very briefly on that? Yeah, I can comment very quickly on that. In fact, I think that's less a problem of offshoring than managing the processes within the company itself. I mean, if you're not managing your customer interface really well and satisfying the customer, then actually it doesn't matter if the people are answering the phone in Scotland or Bangalore. I, I mean, I'm not going to defend people in Bangalore that don't know how to do their job. Uh, and, but, but this is more a problem of the way that companies are, are shipping out customer services to call centers where they have to follow specific rules, um, it, it's not necessarily a problem of offshoring. Well, thank you. You're acknowledging the same problem, different diagnosis. Thank you. And I'll come to you. Yeah, just one question, please. Funnily enough, my question was very much on the same lines, because uh, Mark's mentioned twice that services may well be improved through this. Um, and I just wanted to have some grounds for optimism because I, I've, I've shared the kind of problems that uh, the speakers mentioned there. In fact, some next-door neighbours in their 80s were trying to get a, the local doctor and found that they were put through to India. And uh, for them, it was very disconcerting. And 
uh, even to the extent, of course, of having to spell out the names of the roads and things. Whereas, of course, in the old days, they would get someone who was very local, who knew where they were, and the whole thing took a lot longer than and it seemed to be a lot more complicated. And for people in that situation, they were quite put off doing it next time. And one just wonders, you know, if, if that is a real issue that um, is, is going to improve. Thank you very much. Could I ask Kieran to comment on that? I just wanted to pick up the two points. Firstly, the, the point about cost. I mean, I would argue that companies are only doing this about cost. Companies want to maximize their profits. They have to maximize their profits for their shareholders. That's what they do. And they are moving work overseas purely for cost because it's cheaper. It's 40% cheaper. It's got nothing to do with the quality of service that staff have degrees in India because a lot of the work, you don't need a degree. You don't need a degree to answer a phone and, and help someone with their insurance policy. So it is all about cost, and many companies who we talk about, they talk about, they say clearly it's cost. As far as the quality of service is concerned, uh, I think staff in, in, in India can do their jobs just as well as staff in the UK are absolutely positive about that, but it comes down to the companies and how they train their staff and how they manage their offshoring processes. If they don't train their staff properly, then they won't be able to do their jobs, and if they're not giving the proper customer satisfaction, it's down to the fact that the management aren't training them properly. And this is down to the fact that you know, attrition rates are 70%, because often the, the, the quality of the work environment is so bad, you work there for 18 months, and then you have to go. I think underlying the last two comments is actually an assumption which neither of you accepts, which is that it doesn't matter about geographical distance in the sense that the quality of service well, could be a similar, it could be yeah. a similar standard. It doesn't matter how far mm. away you are. I think our second speaker there was saying it does matter because local knowledge counts. And you can train somebody in, in India, to, you know, till you're blue in the face, but they won't have the local knowledge that that person would have as the people you were asking about uh, phoning the doctor. Can you comment on that? It, no, I, I, mm. I, no, I absolutely agree. When there is a particular service that requires some kind of strong cultural connection to, to your local customers, especially you know, within um, an environment of customer services, then it makes sense to have some local interface. I mean, this, I, I wouldn't defend a company that, that completely ships its customer services department off to India. I mean, I, and I would agree that that probably is just a cost-saving measure. That's not an intelligent use of global resource, um, because then you've got dissatisfied customers. But I, I would just quickly point out that, that I, had my, uh, I had my bag stolen at an airport on Saturday. Of course, I'm trying to ring up my insurance company. It's a British insurance company, entirely British resource. And they're only open Monday to Friday, 9 to 5. Um, now, Norwich Union, who employs Global Resource, it's open 24-7, can help me anytime. Actually, I don't care where they pick up the phone, so long as they can help me when someone's stolen my bag. Quick comment, Kieran. Um, does geography matter? Does geography matter? As far as local knowledge is concerned, I called up uh, National Rail Inquiries to make quite a complicated booking the other day. Uh, the person that I was speaking to from India, and she was absolutely effective. Um, and you know, I got the service that, that I required. I, I, I don't necessarily always see why local knowledge is a factor, as long as that person is trained properly to do the job. Uh, the issue is, it's about cost. It's about taking shortcuts. 
why are these jobs moving so far away to India, where these companies have less control, where the Financial Services Authority has less control and less ability to regulate, where there are problems with the information uh, and data protection. It's because it's cheaper. Otherwise, they wouldn't be taking those risks. Thank you. We have to uh, wind up the debate now. I'm sorry to say, because we've really taken off in the past few minutes, particularly talking about... Uh, talking about uh, what it's actually like on the ground to talk to somebody who's providing a service who's a very long way away from you. But could I say thank you very much on your behalf to our two speakers. It's been very invigorating, particularly in the last few minutes. Thank you very much indeed.